Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. Hey, Modern Therapists, we're so excited to offer the opportunity for one unit of continuing education for this podcast episode. Once you've listened to this episode, to get CE credit, you just need to go to moderntherapistcommunity.com, register for your free profile, purchase this course, pass the post-test, and complete the evaluation. Once that's all completed, you'll get a CE certificate in your profile, or you can download it for your records. For a current list of our CE approvals, check out moderntherapistcommunity.com. Once again, hop over to moderntherapistcommunity.com for one CE once you've listened. Woohoo! You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Renoy, and this is the podcast for therapists where we talk about the things that happen in our practices, the things that happen in our lives, the things that happen with our clients. And this being Suicide Prevention Awareness Month, we are focusing our CE episode on doing suicide assessments and interventions. We're going to make this into a two-part episode. So Next week, even though it's no longer Suicide Prevention Month, we're going to have a little bit more of a follow-up in in depth. So follow the directions from the intro and outro on how you can get your CEs through us, and we appreciate your support in doing that. In our back catalog of episodes, we've covered suicide in a number of episodes i don't know like 17 18 at this point i think it's 18 at this point yeah it's a serious topic and one that the more that we end up talking about this the easier that it becomes to talk with our clients about it and that's you know one of those things that a lot of developing therapists you know kind of really struggle with even just bringing up the word suicide so i in modeling that it's okay to talk about this, we should keep talking about it. We are going to embrace that there's some more in-depth stuff that we've come across in our studies, our trainings, the trainings that I give particularly around this. I have a six-hour workshop that goes into even more depth than what we're talking about here over the next couple of weeks, and hopefully we'll be able to have that up on our learning platform soon. So, as we dive into this first episode here, we're going to be focusing a lot more on risk factors, protective factors, getting into kind of the formation of why people become suicidal in the first place. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, some suicide models as far as how we frame what we're, our understanding of 
how our clients got there and what we can start to do about it. We'll focus our second episode more on the continuation of the assessments and how that leads into interventions and post-follow-up care. So I know that one of the things we've talked about is making sure that we also include some things that are specific to teens. I think that's really important. A lot of our back catalog is talking about therapists and adults, and I think a lot of the study has been on those folks, not therapists particularly, but adults, especially when we're reading the news and we're identifying that teen suicide seems to be going up. And there's a lot of mental health concerns, especially coming out of the pandemic and all that's going on in the world. We wanted to make sure that our modern therapists can do a good job with this stuff, not just with their adult clients, but also with their teens. And as this is an episode on suicide, just a content warning, we're going to be talking about some stuff that's pretty heavy. Please take care of yourself. If this isn't the topic you want to be talking about today, please come on back to it a different week. But um, as Kurt was saying, I think it's really important that we do talk about this, but just, you know, kind of be ready for triggers and different things as we're talking through suicide and suicide assessment. So a couple of definitions here just to start with and frame what we're talking about. And when we are talking about suicide, we're talking about an acute, deliberate act of self-harm undertaken by an individual with at least some intention to die. And we're making that clear from the very beginning because there's a couple of related sort of presentations of clients that we don't want to get into the weeds about. One of those is people who self-harm without the intention to die. And we have a wonderful episode with Angela Caldwell. That oh, yeah, that was into a that. great episode. Yeah, we'll definitely put that in the show notes, that the non-suicidal self-injury. I think we call it rage. Something There's rage in the title. It's a really, really good episode that, that also specifically talks about teens as well. <clears throat> and we're also going to talk a little bit about those clients that present with a chronically kind of suicidal sort of presentation, but are not in that acute sort of stage where they are at risk of moving into the acts that cause or follow through on those intentions to have death. So some of the stuff that we'll talk about fits with that second category there, but we are not addressing that as kind of the primary target of these two episodes here. I know that for a lot of the presentations that I've attended, that one of the things that kind of gets glossed over quite a bit is a lot of presenters will just put up this list of risk factors of things yeah. that make clients you know, at risk for suicide without really getting into a lot of the finer details of just how much of a risk any of these things are. You know, we'll hear things like, you know, sudden life changes or things like this that don't really pay attention to kind of the whys or how in depth that particular risk factors actually show up. Yes. And many of us have heard things like the most common predictor of somebody making a suicide attempt is having a previous attempt themselves. Yeah. And that does continue to hold true that the most potent risk factor is a prior history of suicide attempts. And about half of all deaths by suicide are a follow-up attempt to a previous attempt that has happened. 
So I think that's something that therapists know, but how how much more likely is it? 2016 longitudinal study by Bostwick et al. talks about suicide attempts as a risk factor for completed suicides. That's the title of it. They looked at nearly 1,500 enrollees who they followed after a attempt. And 81 of those, about 5%, perished on another attempt within 12 months. Oh, wow. Uh, and this is particularly disproportionate towards males, that 76.5% by males as compared to 23.5% by females. I will say that a lot of the research that I've come across on general suicide studies, unfortunately, looks at genders in the binary. I know that some of the LGBTQ plus stuff that we've talked about in a couple of our other episodes that we'll also link in our show notes are additive risk factors as well. But a lot of the longitudinal research studies have unfortunately only looked at males versus females and don't really account for a lot of non-binary folks in their populations. Well, and I think especially for for trans youth, I've heard a number of times that for trans teens, the risk of suicide is extremely high. And so we have a couple of episodes uh, that will be specifically on one on trans youth and, and one on kind of the trans experience that we'll put in the show notes. They went on to say that of those who ended up dying by suicide, 72.9% used guns. And compared to all other methods, this is significantly higher. And they found that there were two limitations within their predictions of a suicide risk after a suicide attempt. The first was that subjects had really not been specifically studied from their first lifetime attempt, but rather from first attempts made within the the study period just uh, out of convenience. So we don't know if this is one after the other and they were successful at their last attempt. So this does give credence to what I think a lot of us kind of implicitly know, which is that not only is a previous attempt one of those higher risk factors, but it's a recent previous attempt that the more distant that something is in the past, well, it's still an indicator of a future likelihood to make an attempt. It's something where it's not, you know, just because somebody did something 30 years ago that they're immediately at risk for doing something now. I think that's a good point. I think a lot of folks get very scared of this and don't know how to to react. And and even in, in thinking about this, I I'm I'm glad that we're talking through the risk factors in this way because I think so many folks will will hear about a previous attempt or they'll just hear the words, you know, I I don't want to live or or those types of things in a session and they'll overreact. And so I think really understanding this risk these risk factors are really important. They go on to say that they found a non-fatal one-year reattempt rate of 15% and a fatal attempt rate of somewhere between 0.5 and 2%. But that 0.5 to 2% rises to about 5% over the course of nine years. And when we look at the immediacy factor, it's not just kind of like once you get past that one-year mark, it's like, okay, the client's good. It's that 
okay, we we can maybe put 30 years ago a little bit in the back pocket, but we can't put seven years ago in the back pocket. That these are things that we want to routinely continue to follow up on. And one of the things that you've heard in some of our back episodes, one of the things that I teach in my workshops is that we really should be assessing for suicide in just about every session, whether it's directly with clients or indirectly kind of, you know, okay, there's no presentation of anything that sounds remotely suicidal. But for those clients who have had a previous attempt, it's not something that, okay, you've been my client for like a year and a half now, your attempt was five years ago. This still pushes to the forefront even more of just how much that we need to continue to ask and check in regularly and directly with our clients because this additive risk factor does keep continuing to increase. Well, I think the other piece with that, and I know we need to continue on with the risk factors, but I think just taking a little bit of a side trip into this, you know, kind of every session, I think the importance of making it clear to your clients that that topic is on the table is absolutely crucial. And I think that that topic, suicide, is on the table for every client from the beginning of of sessions is important because people are coming to therapy for a reason. I think the thing that that the nuance, I guess, that I want to look at is being able to indirectly assess is about understanding the risk factors and when you need to move from indirect to direct. Because I think some clients, if you ask them every single session, you can get into the humorous like, nope, not suicidal today. But I think there's an element of not seeing the whole person if that's the only conversation that you're having every single session, or if that's the the primary, that's where you start every single session. And so I think being able to have that awareness and really have the open conversation about it and know when to then go directly into let's, let's talk through this. What's, what's going on here. This is sounding familiar. I think it's really important. And a lot of this starts with your intake paperwork of getting a, really serious history of it. And this is the other limitation that was cited in that study is that first lifetime suicide attempts are routinely ignored in case histories as well as in the research. And so that means that it's systemically underestimated in psychiatric literature about just how often people make attempts. And part of this is getting really good information from our clients. And it oftentimes, you know, slows down the intake process. The more the questions that we have to ask, it's it's difficult. A lot of clients want to get into whatever it is that they're seeking out services for. But when we continue to look through a lot of the risk factors here, what we want to be able to do is get a comprehensive history to start understanding just what the risks are when a client does show up in our office. And if we fail to ask the questions from the beginning, it makes it to where it's even harder to estimate and predict something that we don't really have good models to be able to predict from. That was very, very complex the way you said it. But yes, we do need to ask the question and have the full conversation in the intake. Other risk factors besides a client's own history of suicide attempts is if an immediate family member has died of suicide, it makes a client about 2.1 times more likely 
to follow through and die by suicide themselves. So in your intake research, uh, intake process, you're going to want to ask about, you know, has an immediate family member ever attempted and or died by suicide? And I think that really should include chosen family and family that they are very close to. I think that families look very different. And so I think being able to really understand who who is close enough to this individual that that would have an impact. We also know about the role of alcohol when it comes to somebody's lowering of inhibitions as it comes sure. to you know, taking really dark thoughts and then adding alcohol into the mix and making it even worse. And you know, this is where it's not just the presence of alcohol itself, but also the amount and the frequency of use. And alcohol is something that makes it 2.7 to 37 times more likely that a client what? is going to follow through on uh, a, a suicide attempt that results in a death by suicide. Thir 37%? 37 times. 37 times. Oh my yes. gosh. So two to 37 times more likely to complete suicide if you're drinking a whole bunch. Yes. And that's from a 2017 study by Borges et al. A meta-analysis of acute use of alcohol and the risk of suicide attempts from the Psychological Medicine Journal. And, and we were talking before we were, we were recording. That's specific to alcohol, but my understanding is that any kind of substance use probably is worth looking at for this reason because of the disinhibition and and the a lot of them actually are have the depressive effects or the you know on the opposite end lots of impulsivity so not studies there but i think if you've got someone that is having suicidal ideation and using substances i think it's worth t paying extra attention to it and especially within the context of that definition that we're working from here of with the intent to die, there are yeah. plenty of clients with substance abuse presentations that are engaging in risky behavior due to the substances that is not necessarily with the intention to die. So uh, make sure that you're separating that out a little bit. Yes. Thrizer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thrizer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate upfront. From the client's perspective, Thrizer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thrizer manages the claims end-to-end -end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thrizer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thrizer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. 
Uh, next on the list, getting a little bit into the specifics of co-occurring mental disorders. And I'm going to start with talking about anorexia nervosa. And this has a three times percent, excuse me, a three times increase in the risk of dying by suicide. And a lot of our friends in the eating disorder world are very well aware of this. But being able to screen, especially for anorexia nervosa, because it is a poor quality of life diagnosis. It's well documented across a lot of literature that individuals with eating disorders have difficulties in a whole bunch of areas of functioning, psychological, social, physical, work and school, and that the eating disorder behaviors contribute directly to those impairments, which can lead into a lot of feelings of not being able to get out of you know, the the functioning that the eating disorder is causing that they're then seeing kind of happen around them globally in a continued negative cycle. When you're talking about that, it reminds me of the episode we did with Maggie Mullen. They work with folks with psychosis. And I think there's this element of disordered or delusional thinking that can come up in a lot of different mental health concerns. And when someone's mindset is so off from kind of the day-to-day life, I think that there's this element of feeling stuck, not being able to make, to see any path to a different direction. And I know we'll talk about this more when we get into the model, but I think there's that element of, of when someone is so far down a rabbit hole uh, around their life, not being the way they want it to, their body not being the way they want it to, I think it can be really hard for them to see out. And so I I, I appreciate this because I've had clients with eating disorders that either started out suicidal and then went to eating disorder behavior or the, or the reverse. And I think it's really important to, to have really clear assessments on those things because most folks with eating disorders, and we'll, we'll link to the show notes on a, an episode that we did there, they don't bring it up in session unless you ask them. I mean, the, the harsh self-criticism that's going on inside their head and the behaviors that they're doing that really impede their ability to access protective factors, which we'll also go into, I think it can be a pretty scary space uh, to be in. So I think glad that we're talking about this. You're bringing up about serious mental illness, about things like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Uh, Bradvick had a article in 2018 that looked at serious mental illness and suicide risk and found that things like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder increase the risk of completing a suicide by 5.8%. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that's pretty high. Uh, moving into more and more risky factors, you know, the one that we often associate with suicidality is depression. Mm-hmm. And this includes substance abuse induced depression. There was a study out of Australia that looked at the relationship between depression and suicidal behavior. And out of just over a thousand participants, about one third of them reported lifetime depression. And out of that third, reported lifetime suicidal ideation, and 16% reported a lifetime suicide attempt. There was a really high uh, correlation between the severity of depression and the risk of making a suicide attempt in both men and women, but the suicide attempts were significantly more common among females with a younger age of depression onset. 
And this is going to be something when we get into talking about teens a little bit here in a little bit is going to be a continuing factor that I think often gets overlooked that when we as clinicians start looking at, okay, my client is expressing something about suicide, we tend to focus on just the immediate factors, but we don't start to get into really the depths of the psychiatric history of when these problems became prevalent in a client's life. And the logical pathway of looking at this is that the more time that a client has in their life of being able to solve problems without, you know, a major depressive episode ha happening, the more likely they are to have skills already in place that allow for them to deal with difficult situations. I think the other piece, too, is a lot of us can say like, oh, you know, high school was rough, middle school was rough, you know, that life is just hard for teens, right? And yet, I think when we're really looking at clinical depression in that age bracket, I think it's really important to recognize it's hard to feel hopeful when you've not necessarily had a lot of time in your life when you ha you saw hope for the future or you didn't feel depressed and your quality of life wasn't low. And so I think when we can tap into positive memories and positive times, not only do we have skills and, and the ability to solve things, solve problems and, and cope, but we also don't have a lot of hope because life has always been this way. And there's not really any evidence that's getting any better. You know, I think often underestimated in a lot of the workshops or the discussions about suicide that I hear is we focus a lot on depression. We focus a lot on substance use and abuse. What I don't hear a lot about is how at risk people with anxiety and unfortunately, a lot of the research groups in PTSD with anxiety. Ah. And so rather than separating out trauma from anxiety, we get this mix. You know, researchers do something with that, please. Yeah, clean that up, folks. <laughs> Somebody's got a PhD project out of that, but not just anxiety, but something called anxiety sensitivity seems to be the biggest risk factor. Now, have you ever heard of anxiety sensitivity or do you know what it is? I I don't think I've heard of it, but it seems like it's something that would be kind of the person's experience with anxiety and their difficulty coping with the feelings of anxiety. Am I, am I on it? Am I close? You're pretty close. Uh, <laughs> anxiety sensitivity is defined as the extent to which an individual fears anxiety-related sensations. Ooh, yeah. No, I have a lot of clients who have anxiety sensitivity then. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. That's a great way to describe it. I love that. So it's a, a fear of the feelings of being anxious. And so... As we get into the model, we'll come back to this point a little bit, but if you're just afraid of even being afraid right. of things, it yeah. really becomes isolating. And when we talk about you know the importance of you know protective factors of going out and being able to have good, strong social networks and and this kind of stuff, but if there's this fear of something going wrong or a social anxiety that's added to this, this sensitivity is even more so correlated with suicidal ideation and suicide attempts than even depression is. And oh, I wow. That makes a lot of sense. Because I think to me, I, I 
you know, in hearing this experience of this fear of being anxious or just this discomfort and how painful it is to be anxious and, and some of my clients feel like there's no way out. Like they're just going to always feel this way. It's, it's so uncomfortable. And there's, there's a lot of emotional dysregulation with no real way of self-soothing that it is terrifying for them. Well, and it's terrifying because it's a feeling of a loss of control yeah. in addition to whatever else is going on. And and the meta-analysis that was done on this by Stanley et al., 2018, Anxiety Sensitivity and Suicidal Ideation, Suicide Risk, a meta-analysis in the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology. They talk about how this just loss of control leads to greater experience of, of distress, which is kind of a volitional factor when it comes to greater suicide risk. Distress is what you're talking about here. Yeah. And especially when they add, you know, any other sort of, you know, co-occurring pathologies, if there's anxiety and depression, anxiety and substance abuse, we're now looking at greater and greater risks of, you know, any of these feelings, you know, being isolated pose a great risk. But when you start adding comorbidities on top of them, it gets even higher. And just something where, again, I don't see a lot of people talking about anxiety as a really major flag to look for in clients when it comes to suicidal ideation. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I don't think I've heard that either. And to me, it makes so much sense with the the extreme huge emotions and with anxiety, I mean, anxiety is activating. Whereas if you're really deep in depression, I mean, maybe these numbers are wrong. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I've heard that like when you're super far down into depression, you don't have the wherewithal to complete suicide or to attempt suicide. Whereas with anxiety, you got all the energy you need. And so to me, it seems like there's a real miss there if people aren't talking about and assessing their anxious clients for suicidal ideation and, and potential suicide attempts. Now, our biggest risk factors as far as uh, co-occurring mental disorders comes out of personality disorders. And personality disorders as a whole show a 20-fold increase in suicide risk for patients. 20-fold? Yes. Wow. Okay. When we isolate out borderline personality disorder, that 20-fold increase goes to 37 times more likely. And wow. when we go to borderline personality disorder with alcohol misuse, we're at 45 times more likely. Okay. And these risks tend to follow some of the ways that the diagnostics fall. Relative risks are higher for females in this group and uh, elevated with younger age ranges, especially with earlier onset of diagnostics, particularly closer to 16 years old, but uh, showing a high risk through age 39. So diagnose, being diagnosed with borderline personality disorder as female is a and and especially if they're also substance use on board or a misuse almost 50 50. yeah i think that's that's incredibly scary risk factors also include a uh, history of child abuse uh, martin et al in a 2016 study child abuse and the prevalence of suicide attempts 
among those reporting suicidal ideation, looked at number of participants over the course of 12 months. And out of those who reported suicidal ideation in the past 12 months in the study, 61.2% reported high rates of child abuse. Uh, they were 2.56 times more likely to have a suicide attempt than a control group. And for those who had a history of sexual abuse, it was seven times higher than the control group. Are these risk factors additive, do you think? Or or is it something where the most prevalent diagnostic or life experience kind of put them in those categories? Because it seems to me like I'm thinking about someone who potentially has borderline personality disorder and eating disorder, as well as, you know, past childhood trauma and substance abuse. And I, I feel like, are we, at, you know, where are we at with that? Because it seems like there's so many factors that oftentimes are com comorbid. If I'm completely honest, even with a lot of the meta-analyses that I'm reading, is there's some understandings of the additive factors of them that, you know, what we were just referencing with borderline personality and alcohol misuse, that they definitely do show some additive factors, but... Mm -hmm. You know, hopefully there's not somebody who meets all of these risk factors out there, that poor person, if that person does exist, that has all of these diagnostics, has all of these other risk factors in place. But it very easily stands to reason that, yeah, these things are quite additive, much like ACEs becomes kind of an additive sort of thing that all of these risk factors well, the research isn't like, yes, we have definitive proof. I think we have a common understanding that, yes, these things definitely show it. And for folks who don't know what ACE, the ACEs study is, it's the Adverse Childhood Experiences study that, that Vincent Felitti did through Kaiser. I actually include the ACE exam, I guess, or the ACE study questionnaire in my intakes. It's actually really helpful. Other things that get talked about a lot, and we're not going to do a deep dive into these. We're going to continue on with our episode here a little bit. But anything that is a sudden change in a client's life becomes another factor that ends up becoming a multiplier of a client's risk. And we're talking about things here like a sudden loss of employment, a divorce or a separation, somebody runs into legal difficulties or uh, a, a very rapid uh, social isolation. These things all serve as motivational factors that are in addition to the risks that somebody may already have as their primary presentation as they show up and become pretty significantly things that we need to address and assess for in our sessions with clients when they are bringing these things up in, in their sessions with us. And I think that really means that a lot of therapists who say they work with life transitions, quote unquote, really need to understand suicide, even if they don't typically have more intense cases or or more severe diagnostics coming into their office, life transitions is a risk factor for suicide, right? I mean, people are like, oh, I work with life transitions. It's like, this is a part of life transitions, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, there's the really 
nice and stable life transitions of I'm thinking about a career change. And if the right job opens up, then I'll I'll interview for it and I'll take it. Those are the planned life transitions, but unplanned ones. And this goes back to talking about trauma here is there's oftentimes that need for a sense of control after a trauma where people will make major life transitions just to get out of some of those anxiety or ruminating feelings. And that ends up becoming something where if that can also subsequently mean like your social support system, you know, your work buddies are completely changing that puts you at a greater risk for not having some of the wonderful protective factors that are in place. I think it's, it's, it's something where the more we talk about this and we've, had 18 episodes that at least have something involved with suicide in them. I just realized that there's there's no there's no one thing that says, okay, I've been able to completely avoid having suicidality show up in my office because life can change so quickly, things can happen that come out of the blue. And if someone's coming to therapy, unless it really is solely personal growth, and even then I would argue that things can change in that regard too there is some sort of underlying mental health concern that they're bringing forward. And so much of this stuff, especially with traumas and and sudden life changes, like everyone should be assessing for this. Because even when you, you and I were talking about preparing for this episode, I was like, well, you know, I did a lot of this when I was working in other venues, but in my private practice, I work with executives. Like <laughs> many of them are fine. But then I was like, no, 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 you know, executives die by suicide too. And so I think it's that, that piece of really being able to understand what the risk factors are is important. Do we have more risk factors or are we moving into protective factors? What are we doing right now? Well, this is the part where you had previewed talking a little bit more about teenagers. And- uh, yes. Okay. So let me just finish this one thing and then we'll, we'll get through it. But I think when, when we get to protective factors, I think we have these risk factors, but another risk factor is a lack of protective factors. So, so when we're, when we're looking through all of this, I think it's really important to understand the whole picture because there's oftentimes so much that can go into something that may surprise you if you're not really picking up all of these risk factors. So as I've talked about on the show quite a bit, a lot of my practice focuses on working with teenagers and a lot of what is readily available as far as research seems to start to acknowledge here in 2022 that A lot of previous research on teen suicidal ideation and suicide attempts seems to be researchers and clinicians who are treating teenagers as miniature versions of adults and don't look at necessarily the specific factors that go along with being a teenager that stand in addition to the risk factors of adults, but you've heard me mention a couple of times, the earlier onset of a mental illness makes a bigger risk factor. And this can come from a variety of things, such as lesser family support, the greater impacts of things like poverty. Uh, But the two that I tend to go above and beyond even what a lot of the gold standard protocols for looking at suicidal ideation within teenage clients is, number one, the uh, exposure to other suicides. 
uh, whether so the it, kind of social media families, whatever contagion the sort contagion of idea stuff. Yeah. And teenagers pose a lot higher risk of seeing this as an option when somebody does die by suicide, because in that underdeveloped adolescent brain, the prefrontal cortex is still there, still, uh, still, still growing, still growing, still not there. And it really becomes evident when there becomes this hyper focus on trying to get out of a problem when a teenager interprets a another student at school somebody in the media somebody on social media who has died by suicide that that becomes one of the few options that a teenager starts to look at and uh, when we get into talking about kind of the model of how we look at suicidality, that lack of being able to see other options ends up becoming the biggest kind of conglomerate risk factor from going from ideation into action. It seems like with teens that are frequently engaged with their phones, uh, through social media or other types of platforms where they can see a lot and they can see far and it's a dissociative act even kind of scrolling through and watching video after video or whatever it is. It seems like the autonomy of a teenager has diminished in some ways where they're either very enthralled to their phone and what everybody's doing. And so they don't leave their social life at school anymore they they bring their social life with them in their pocket and then they oftentimes don't have autonomy in their family life i mean when you're talking about a lot of these things are about trying to take control i just feel like teens have a lot less control now than they've than they had when i was growing up you know joking that you know the gen x are latchkey kids that watch themselves but like i think that there's this element of huge amounts of stimulation and emotional content being fed where they're also not having control over how they, you know, make how they live their lives. And this comes to the other factor that I tend to focus a lot more on when it comes to the teenage population is the role of impulsivity. Yeah. That while there are certain personality characteristics in adults that can lead to impulsive behavior, and it may be related to one of the diagnostics that we mentioned earlier, but it may just be personality traits that lead to doing impulsive things that we don't necessarily think of adolescents on a good day as being really predictable <laughs> and, and rational beings. With, but, with slow, deliberate actions that they take. <laughs> and really well thought out cause and effect sort of plans. Yeah, yeah. That especially those teenagers who are presenting as having more impulsive behaviors already, whether it's part of a diagnostic or not, that when suicidal ideation is present, those are clients that we need to focus on more and have stronger safety planning around because of that lack of ability, uh, that lack of ability to have that cause and effect sort of action really play out. Well, and to me, you know, and and this is for you know, kind of clients who've come into my office and and you know, kind of 
all of the, the, the different times I've engaged with treatment around teens. And it just seems like there's also a lack of communication. And so these factors are even more intense and the teen is potentially less likely to talk to us about it. So it's even harder to assess and really get to the, the crux of the matter if we're not able to really dig in and, and understand the isolation or if we're not following all of the things on social media and the news and that kind of stuff and knowing if there's a, a, a potential for contagion or we're not necessarily seeing the impulsive you know, decisions that a teen is making because they are, they have put them, pulled themselves together before they walk into our office. And so I think it's something where getting a, a full picture of what's happening in the teen's life, including their relationships with their family members and, and how likely they are to bring forward concerns, I think is critical because many teens don't even want to be in the therapy room with us, at least at the very beginning. And so if we don't have that, that engagement and that buy-in, so much of this is really hard to assess if the caregivers don't have a sense of what's going on in their teen's life. Furthering some of the ideas around you know, earlier onset of risk factors being present, one of the more robust meta-analyses that I've seen in looking at teenagers is by Kempisi et al., uh, from 2020, uh, suicidal behaviors among adolescents from 90 countries, a pooled analysis of the global school-based student health survey. This is in BMC Public Health. Looked at teenagers being in two distinct groups, a younger group of 13 to 15-year-olds and a older group of 16 to 18-year-olds. And they controlled for a phenomenal amount of co-variables here, looking at you know income disparities and uh, found that, well, that does have some background contributions to it that more specifically, the things of looking at within teenagers are, again, the social isolation or lack of having friends, as well as things like bullying. And mm. when those things are in place, I mean, there's a bullying episode that will be coming out here in the next couple of months with, but looking at the lack of friends, in addition to the targeted bullying that can happen. And as you just pointed out, where, it, you know, Gen Xers and a lot of millennials grew up at least being able to go home and kind of, you know, not have to be constantly on social media and be constantly yeah. faced with, you know, threatening or, you know, demeaning language or isolation, exclusion. Mm -hmm. uh, these all become risk factors that particularly affect that younger age group, 13 to 15 year olds. Sure. Particularly 13 to 15 year old females. Got it. Now the two groups do end up making it a, a little bit more balanced when they reach to that 16 to 18 year olds pool, but that's not necessarily the you know, everything gets magically better when you turn 16. It's <laughs> more of a lot of things don't get magically better when even, you turn 16. It's even riskier to be a 13 to 15 year old girl is kind of the takeaway from this. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I think there's there's just so much that can be going on in these teenagers lives and 
Honestly, it's one of the reasons that I have strayed away from doing that a little bit because I think I, I, I recognize that you need to have energy and focus and, and really be able to understand what, what they're faced with. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. And a couple of other risk factors that I'll mention real briefly before we move over to the protective factors, but owning a firearm is one of the highest risk factors that, you know, the those exercising those Second Amendment rights makes somebody a 50-fold times more likely to die by suicide just by purchasing and owning a firearm. So 50 times more likely. Okay, this episode's going to be banned by the NRA. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> we can decide if you want to keep that in or not, Kurt. <laughs> and there are two particular ethnic groups within the United States that show a higher risk of attempting and completing suicide. Those are white people and American Indians and Alaska Natives. Oh, interesting. What do you think that's about? What I've seen about Native populations within America is that a lot of the risk factors that we see, poverty, high substance abuse, lack of, you know, a lot of resources, the inability to really uh, move in and out of the communities with continued support from the social structures that are there all pose really big risk factors. Makes sense. How about for white people? A lot of the research seems to suggest that white people don't have as strong of ties to family of origins, to communities where they grow up in, and tend to isolate more and tend to cope with things like substances and buying guns. And So rugged individualism may not be as good for our mental health as we thought. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Sure. But one of the greatest factors worldwide that has been shown to be a risk factor for people at risk of suicidal ideation and dying by suicide is living at elevations above 6,000 feet. Wow. Okay. And there seems to be really strong you know, consensus that there's something to this. And it seems to be something that people haven't quite been able to put, you know, a here's, you know, an absolute factor. This is true in the United States. It's true in the Himalayas. It's true in mountain regions all across the world. So this is not just something where it's attributable to, you know, just the isolated living of being up on a mountaintop someplace and, you know, the American West or something where there's other factors like, you know, higher rates of gun ownership. But across cultures, um, even, even in some of the more populated areas within these regions, there seems to be something about the uh, thin mountain air that seems to affect the way that people problem solve when they are feeling stuck in their problems. 
Huh. So uh, you said you weren't going to spend much time on it. So where are we going next? <laughs> All right. So we have spent a lot of time talking about risk factors. You brought up some protective factors earlier. And I will lead off this section by saying just because protective factors are present doesn't mean that they balance out risk factors. There's no magic formula of, you know, you have four protective factors and two risk factors. So the pros list outweighs the cons list here. I think that's a good point. Because I, I, for me, oftentimes, if I'm doing more of an indirect assessment, I do look, you, you hear more about protective factors oftentimes, um, or, or at least I'm looking for them. I'm looking for a future orientation or a social support network or reasons to live, stuff like that. And so I think knowing that some of these risk factors can completely outweigh all of the protective factors, I think is important to, to pay attention to. And so the most robust protective factors tend to be reasons for living, having some sort of you know, plans for the future that really allows for clients to demonstrate that, hey, I've got reasons to live. I really want to get out of this particular situation, but I'm still planning on being there for grandma's 100th birthday or, you know, some sort of other future plan that helps to get out of the immediate crisis of that acute suicidal phase. Well, and even reason for, reasons for living oftentimes I, I know that there's also a social support one, but it can also be the people who are relying on you, or it can be the animals that your pets or your, you know, your friends, or, or there's something where you feel tied to some responsibility or some positive thing that even though you can't access it completely, you still have a, you know, a tie to it. Right. And that also includes, uh, protective factors also includes things like being free from substances. We mentioned just how risky substances are, but yeah. so the inverse holds true. Attending a place of worship or some place of internalized spiritual teachings against suicide. And, you know, us, Katie and I being based out of California, California shows one of the lowest overall suicide rates within the country. And a lot of the states that show the highest risk of suicides end up being places, particularly in the American West, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, Nevada, New Mexico. These are all places that, you know, are outside of, you know, a couple of major metropolitan areas, a lot of rural living, a lot of high ownership places. And a lot of the you know, rates by per 100,000 uh, people who die, this is from 2018 data from the CDC, would suggest that Texas would have really high suicide rates. But Texas tends to fall uh, on the lower side of suicide hmm. rates. Good job, and, Texas. And a lot of this seems <laughs> to be based on the uh, also strong culture of belonging to religious institutions that, that a, a lot of Texans have. The presence in the home of having a child or having child-rearing responsibilities, it's not a significant factor for single men, but uh, men who are married or cohabitating where there's children present, this tends to be a uh, pretty strong protective factor, but it's a lot stronger protector factor in women 
And women tend to show more resilience towards suicidal ideation with the greater number of children that they have. Huh. And, you know, this isn't ridiculous. Like women with three or more children kind of tend to taper out as far as how much protective factor it is. So it's not like go and encourage your clients to have like bunches of babies just to get through being through suicidal. <laughs> but the more children that they have to live there for and to to provide for tends to be a uh, very significant factor for women. Having an intact marriage tends to help men a lot more. They're two times less likely to uh, make a suicide attempt and complete suicides if they have an intact marriage. Strong social support, being employed, having a trait of kind of looking towards the positive side of life, and having a trusted relationship with a counselor, a physician, or other mental or physical health service provider all tend to be really good, strong factors. That's us. That's us. We're we're a protective factor. That's that feels really positive. So a lot of those things make sense. I think a lot of those things are protective, not just for suicide, suicidality. It's also protective for mental health in general. And so to me, you know, when we're really looking at assessment and lo looking at at protective factors. It's all it's all of the same piece. It's not like you do a whole assessment that's solely for suicide and then you go and do the rest of the assessment. I mean, this is really a full assessment of of what the the client has going for them. Yes. To kind of wrap up this episode and lead into next week's episode. Next week again is we're going to talk about kind of what to do in your assessments and how to follow up. We've been talking about this model a little bit throughout this episode, and I want to spend the last little bit here talking about how all of this kind of comes together. And the model that I really like and work from is called the Integrated Motivational Volitional Model, or the IMV model. And this was developed by Rory O'Connor and further updated by O'Connor and Kurt Lee. And this looks at, there's three phases when it comes to uh, suicidal ideation and attempts. I will put a graphic that comes from this model into the show notes. So that way you can reference this because I think it makes a lot more sense and it's a lot more tangible when you can see it, not just hearing us talk about it on the podcast here. But in this model, the pre-motivational phase is looking at three factors. A lot of us have heard of things like the stress diathesis model. and Oh, I always heard of it as the diathesis stress model. Interesting. Tomato omatots, I guess. Omatots. But anyway... The diathesis is kind of the personal factors that exist for a client and their, you know, outlook on life, their abilities to handle things, uh, some of their particular diagnostics, the SES class that they're in. All of those things are individual factors. Yes. Coupled with the environment that they are living in. 
And just as an example of this, if we're talking about those teenagers who are in an environment where they're subject to a lot of bullying and they also have some sort of news in their life about somebody that they like dying by suicide, these are environmental factors that exist in addition to those individual factors as explained by the diathesis. Sure. And you add to that any sort of life events, you know, a sudden move, a sudden change in, you know, socioeconomic status, a loss of a job. These are all pre-motivational factors that we need to be prepared for. Yes. Now, the particulars of somebody's diathesis, the coping skills that they have, these are things that I believe that can be changed through good mental health work, mental health awareness. It's when the combination of the diathesis, the environment, and the life events are coupled with something called defeat and humiliation that becomes a threat to the person's self. This is you know, the expansion of social problems that really end up making somebody feel like I can't get out of this. And it leads to a particular feeling within this model called entrapment. Now, that entrapment really is this feeling that we've been referring to all episode of I can't get out of this. I can't see another way. I can't see any way to solve this. I'm and stuck. And not only can I not see it, I can't hear other alternatives from the people around me. Yeah. And, and this is the particular phase of suicidal ideation that puts people most at risk from going from that. I don't want to be here. I'm thinking about, you know, suicide. I'm thinking about what life might be like without me or how I just don't want to have to solve these problems into a more activated phase of I'm thinking about ways to kill myself. Yeah. And this is the particular window where we have to intervene in the best way possible for clients that meets their specific needs, that starts to give them a sense of the problems have a way out of them. And we'll talk a lot more in the next episode of the risks of intervening incorrectly, especially at this stage. Sure. But this feeling of entrapment ends up showing up as really ruminative flooding, that they, they lose the cognitive control to control what their thoughts are. All that they can think about is how stuck that they are. It's also in this really hyper-aroused panic dissociation, and this is often presenting as somatic symptoms that are very panic-like and are, are very unfamiliar for a lot of clients that when we talked about the risk factors of anxiety earlier, and just especially for those who are uh, anxiety-sensitive, that this ends up heightening this entrapment feeling of not only can I not get out of whatever this problem is that's causing it, I'm experiencing all of these new and unwanted situations here. Well, and just the, the, the way you're describing it, your mind is going and going and going and you can't control it. You're physically feeling overwhelmed and like something is wrong. To me, that feels excruciating. I, I would imagine that sensation and that experience internal experience would be really overwhelming. 
And what that ends up doing is it ends up mediating a fear of dying. It, it gets rid of that cognitive fear of no longer existing, which moves people from that latent suicidal ideation into active suicidal ideation. And I know you didn't mention this one, but I saw it on one of the assessment tools that we're going to talk about in the next episode. But fear of dying actually is a protective factor. So if you if you lose that in this entrapment phase, that really pushes across the finish line and some for some folks to to actual attempts. And these ultimately lead to what the, the entrapment definition includes uh, emotional pain. This is that intense negative affect. And this ends up being feelings of guilt, shame, hopelessness, disgrace, rage, and defeat. And that overpowers those essential needs of love, of control, of protecting one's self-image, avoiding shame, avoiding humiliation. And this is ultimately going to end up in a feeling of desperation. Which we don't want our clients to feel this feeling of desperation if we can help them avoid it. Out of this episode, we are really hoping that what you're walking away from is the specific risk factors that really end up contributing and just how rapidly those risk factors can deteriorate into this entrapment phase of the IMV model and why it's so important for you to have kind of a global understanding of who your client is before they ever get to this phase. And, you know, we can have really wonderful, nice clients show up. But when those life events end up happening that end up triggering them, if we don't understand just how sensitive clients are going to be to some of these risk factors when they're in that heightened state, it really gives us a better idea to develop a safety plan, which we'll get into in our next episode of being able to point out, here are very, very specific risk factors to you. You know, coming from my teenage practice is you've got a test coming up next week. And I know that when you get really anxious about things that it heightens all of these other feelings and we're concerned about how you're going to be able to cope at that particular time that helps us to better be able to safety plan with our clients. Well, and I think the other piece that that popped into my head while you were talking is a lot of folks come to therapy in this heightened state. Like that's what you know, someone's dragging them into therapy because they see this entrapment or they see this or they've had an attempt or there's something that's going on. And so to me, I think the converse is true. Helping someone get that resolved where they're able to to de-escalate some of these feelings or able to to get to a, a place where they can actually see hope or see s- some sort of future or those types of things. If we can move them out of entrapment, which I'm sure we'll talk about next time, we may identify new protective factors. We may better understand risk factors because in that state of entrapment, we're not seeing the whole client. We're seeing that client in a, in a space that doesn't, that, that maybe some of these protective factors have become less relevant and may not be reported upon. So it also means that we need to be assessing these things over time because these things go up and down. The protective factors aren't static. The risk factors aren't static. Like these are things that we need to be paying attention to. And I think, you know, when I look at 
times when, you know, kind of I've gotten complacent, I'll, I'll say it for myself, like oftentimes the, what we talk about in therapy is what's happening this week, which is relevant to some of this stuff, but we're not necessarily, you know, when I say, hey, how's the week going? If someone doesn't present and doesn't share some of these things or does it as a doorknob confession, it's something that we're just not getting that information. And so I think we have to be a little bit more direct, a little bit more strategic with asking these questions so that we don't miss these types of, of pieces. Because I don't know how many times this has happened to you, Kurt, but like there have been times when I'll ask a question based on what I know about a client. I'll be like, hey, have you been drinking water? And they'll go like, oh, no, that's why I'm feeling a lot more depressed right now. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, it's one of those things where it's, it's, it's being able to know your client well enough to, to really see what's going to be coming down the pike for them and understand the impacts those things typically have. And also on a broader scale, what some of these risk factors can, can do to clients, even when they've never shown up before. So I'm, I'm excited to, to continue this conversation. I know we're going to talk about some tools, assessment tools, as well as, and, and the way you've described it is the next one is actually about intervention and planning. It's just the, the assessment, the actual act of doing these assessments is the first stage of safety planning because it is so, it's just so entwined. And so I'm looking forward to next week's conversation because I think it'll be very practical. This was very eye-opening. <laughs> This was a lot of data, a lot, a of, lot of data, take, yeah. a lot of information to take in to say, okay, what actually could make a difference? And then the next time is very practical. How do you use that information to understand your client and, and walk through the phases of getting to a safety plan and intervention and moving through into follow up and, and how you move forward when someone's gotten to this acute state? So I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. You can find our references and our show notes over at mtsgpodcast.com and make sure that you follow us on our social media. Subscribe if you are not already subscribed. And check out our Facebook group, The Modern Therapist Group. And if you like our long-form content, please also consider being a patron, and that helps support us. And yeah, and with the Patreon patrons, we do have options so that you can do Q&As with us and you can dig in with us in person over Zoom to talk about some of these things and ask questions. It's, it's, a, it's an offer that we have for our patrons that we would love to, to share with you. And make sure that you follow the directions on how to get CEs. And until next time, I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Renoy. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months. Just a quick reminder, if you'd like one unit of continuing education for listening to this episode, go to moderntherapistcommunity.com, purchase this course, and pass the post-test. A CE certificate will appear in your profile once you've successfully completed the steps. Once again, that's moderntherapistcommunity.com. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. 
You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes.